Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing, brought to you by Livewire Markets. I'm your host, David Thornton. This week's guest is Alan Kohler AM, one of Australia's preeminent business journalists. Alan first cut his teeth in 1969 as a cadet at The Australian. From 1985 to 1988, he served as editor of The Australian Financial Review and was editor of The Age from 1992 to 1995. In 2007, together with Robert Gottliebson and Stephen Bartholomews, Alan founded Australian Independent Business Media, publisher of Business Spectator and Eureka Report. In 2016, after selling the business to News Corp, Alan founded The Constant Investor, which was sold on to InvestSmart. In a case of full circle, Alan now once again writes for the Eureka Report, The New Daily, hosts The Money Cafe with Alan Kohler, and you'll also still find him reading the finance news on the ABC. In today's episode, we discuss inflation and the rate cycle, what needs to change at the RBA, and his views on the ETF market. If you're an Apple podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. All right, Alan, thanks very much for joining us on the Rules of Investing. My pleasure. Alan actually gave me my break as a finance journalist, uh, which always struck me as bold, I've got to say, because I'd studied neither finance nor journalism, and I didn't have any industry experience, so I didn't tick any box, Alan. I saw your potential, Dave. (laughs) Well, I'm happy you gave me that gig. It It was a good time. All right, we have an RBA decision later today, so let's talk markets. A couple of weeks ago, we saw inflation fall from 8.4 to 7.4. Economists were predicting about 8.1. Three-year yields fell uh, to 3.55%. Are soft landings on narrow roads starting to look feasible, or was it just a break in play? Well, whether the landing is soft or hard is entirely in the hands of the Reserve Bank. I mean... Um, uh, I think there should be a soft landing. I think that um, uh, this month's uh, meeting today should be there should be no rate hike. I think that they should pause now. They've done enough nine rate hikes in a row. Um, my view is that they've done enough. Um, they should stop and have a look, see what happens. Uh, and if they did that, there'd be a soft landing. Um, the futures market has got the CarBA cash rate going to 4.16% at the moment in about September. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, if that happens, I think it'll be a hard landing. All bets um, are off. Well, you know, I mean, I, yeah, if, if, the, if the futures market is right, it's, it's a hard landing. Um, as to, uh, I think most economists are saying, or a lot of economists are saying 3.85% for the peak cash rate. I mean, if that, uh, if that happens, it'll be hardish. You know, it's a bit hard to, it's a bit hard to know. That's why I think the Reserve Bank should pause because I don't think it's. I think things are different this time, given the amount of debt. There's much more debt than than uh, any time in the past. So it's they need to be careful and um, they need to kind of uh, see what happens really. But do they really? I mean, they care, but do they really care about that? It just looks like all they're they're worried about at the moment is inflation and their credibility, you know, especially given that comment Lowe made a few years ago about 2024. But as, you point, 
But as you pointed out in the preamble, the, it looks like inflation has peaked already. So yes, they're worried about inflation, and then then they have a two to three percent uh, target, and they're specifically worried about inflation expectations, and they want to make sure that inflation expectations are not uh, embedded and elevated. Um, so they're kind of that's what they're that's what they're up to. But uh, you know, inflation uh, is clearly temporary. It, the spike in inflation was caused by uh, the pandemic supply chain problems, then the Ukraine war. Uh, and also, to some extent, by the spike in demand as a result of the fiscal stimulus during the pandemic. All of those things are temporary. Um, and and the, so, good, the goods inflation has mostly gone away. It's, it's mostly services inflation now. That's true. Um, I mean, separately, I think that there's a case for saying that the we can live with higher, slightly higher inflation for a while. I think that, you know, whether it's 3 5 4%, is not that big of a deal, um, you know, in my view. I mean, they obviously they think it is a big deal and they're kind of um, trying to ensure that inflation expectations are, are you know, between 2 and 3%. That's the whole aim here. But, um, you know, uh, uh, they have three parts to the mandate at the Reserve Bank. Um, uh, one is the stability of the currency, which does mean inflation. The second one is full employment. And the third one is the welfare and prosperity of the people of Australia. Um, but since they started uh, the inflation targeting regime in the early 90s, all of those uh, all of those objectives have come to mean restraining uh, inflation, uh, or at least you know keeping inflation between two to three percent. So. You know, I think that they need to get out their mandate again and have a look at it and what the words actually say and what they mean. So you don't think slightly elevated inflation over that 2 to 3% band is as systemically toxic as they, they say it is? Well, look, I mean, I think it would probably be better if inflation was 2 to 3%, but I think that, um, look, my view would be that you should give equal weight to each of the three mandates and not sort of give 80% to the inflation target and then, you know, 10% each to the full employment and prosperity and welfare of Australian people bits of it, you know. How about 33% each of the three mandates is what I say. And, you know, if, in that case, you would say, well, okay, in order to preserve employment and the prosperity and welfare of the people of Australia, maybe we'll have to live with slightly higher inflation for a little while. Um you know, uh, but they're not doing that. That's not, it's all about the inflation target. And by the way, <clears throat> the inflation target being 2 to 3% has m meant that after, after the GFC, when inflation was stuck below 2%, um, they cut interest rates too much in order to get inflation up to the 2 to 3% target. And so we went into the pandemic in uh, March 2020 with the cash rate of 0.75%, which was a historic low to begin with. And then they cut it again uh, to 0.1% in November of 2020. So, um, and the result of that, you know, a decade of very low interest rates was a boom in house prices, which has made housing unaffordable um, and uh, has completely distorted the economy. And so the, t the, the, the problem with the inflation target uh, works both ways. When they when they spent years 
trying to get inflation up to 2% by cutting interest rates, in my view, too low. Uh, and now, in order to get it down to 3%, um, they're increasing interest rates too fast. Okay, so what's broken at the RBA then? What needs to change uh, fundamentally? You've said uh, the place needs to get uh, renovated, a term that was stolen by Treasurer Chalmers. What needs to change? Uh, well, I think they need more flexibility in their targets. Uh, the inflation target needs to uh, be more flexible. I think they need to revisit the mandate, as I've just been saying. Um, uh, as to how they operate, well, look, uh, the Reserve Bank has a slightly sort of uh, unusual operating uh, method, which is that they've got the staff led by the governor um, at the moment, Philip Lowe, and they've got a board of outsiders. Um, the Treasury Secretary is a uh, ex officio on the board so that the, whoever the Treasury Secretary at the time is sits on the board. Uh, they generally have one or two economists and then business people. So it looks like a kind of a normal uh, company board in many ways. Um, and uh, I mean, I think there's a case for having a uh, an external board uh, like that, but also a monetary policy committee of experts um, who really know what they're doing. So... Uh, that's kind of what the Reserve, the Federal Reserve in the US has. It has got a monetary policy committee, uh, it's called the Federal Open Market Committee, of uh, 17 experts, economists. Um, the Bank of England has a monetary policy committee. I think that there's a case for that happening in Australia as well. Um, I mean, the, the main problem, I think, with the, with the current setup now here is that because the board is primarily consists of non-experts um the experts within the reserve bank tend to would tend to dominate i would say uh, although who knows um the the federal open market committee publishes the uh interest rate forecasts of each of the members um they tend to also publish you know uh, anyone who dissented from the decision so they're very transparent. I think there's a case for that. Um, uh, I, I don't really, I don't think that's, you know, a hugely important thing, but I think that, you know, probably would make things a bit better. Um, uh, there's only been one uh, outsider appointed governor of the Reserve Bank over the years, and that was Bernie Fraser, who was the, uh, the Secretary of the Treasury. So not much of an outsider. He was basically an inside outsider. Um, uh, and virtually every other governor was previously deputy governor. The only one who wasn't deputy governor was Bob Johnson, who was the um, uh, secretary of the bank, who uh, not not quite a deputy governor. There was, there was another bloke who was the deputy governor, um, uh, but uh, Don uh, Bob Johnson was. Um, uh, as secretary, he basically ran the sort of uh, administration of the Reserve Bank and he was made governor. Uh, but every other governor ca uh, had been previously deputy governor. Now, I, I mean, I think there's a case now for an, outs an outside appointment um, to, uh, well, just to bring some fresh ideas and some fresh thinking to the bank. 
um, yeah, so do that outside of Portman. It might be. I've got no idea, but I, I do think so. That's the kind of the extent of the renovation I'm, I'm it, suggesting. Yeah. I mean, Dr. Phil Lowe has been just completely tarred and feathered the past 12 months. He's, he's turned into um, just an avatar for the public's frustration. Does he deserve the hate? Um, he's tried really tried to brush it off the past few weeks. Well, look, he made a mistake, which was um, that uh, when the uh, interest rate, when the RBA cash rate was cut to 0.1% in November 2020, uh, he said that it wouldn't, he, they expected that it wouldn't change uh, for three years. Um, and that was changed to 2024. So um, in, in 2021, so effectively three years. So um, I understand why he said that. Um, I mean, but that, was, that's always the case. It's always the case that guidance is designed just to influence, you know, demand at, at the time, jaw burning. Correct, but but um, that's not the way ordinary people see it. They don't really understand um, the forward guidance uh, procedures of central banks and how that all works. They, if they see the Reserve Bank governor get up and say that they don't think interest rates are going to change from 0.1 percent uh, for three years, that's what they think is going to happen. You know, so that's exactly what happened. And so, so they take and, out look, loans. And Dr. Lowe has acknowledged that that was a mistake. And if he had his time over, he probably would have done differently. Um, but, you know, I mean, he's continuing forward guidance this time at the moment by saying that uh, they expect more rate hikes. Um, but again, that's just as it was with the 0.1% for three years um, thing. Uh, so you're, call, you're calling his bluff? No, it's not a matter of that. I'm just saying that the 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 statements that they expect more rate hikes to come down the pike, that there to be more rate hikes, is not a prediction. It's all designed to influence behaviour at the time. He says it. He's trying to actually, in some ways, you could say that he's trying to avoid putting up interest rates more by saying he's going to. If you know what I mean. So he doesn't he says it, it. And, and everyone acts like, no, but he, he reckons that if everyone acts like there's going to be two more rate hikes, then maybe he won't have to do it. So it's just double speak. Well, well, you could put it that way, but um, look, no, look, I understand. Forward guidance has become uh, a monetary policy tool designed to influence behaviour at the time that it is that it, it it's spoken. It's not a prediction. Um, but look, you know, when he said uh, in February, when the you know the, with the February rate hike uh, that they expect more rate hikes, all the economists went, "Oh, crikey, there's going to be two more rate hikes." And and even people who um, who believed and had been saying that the February hike would be the last of them, suddenly put in two more rate hikes into their into their forecasts because of what Dr. Lowe said at the time. But as I say, I don't think that that uh, should be taken as a prediction by Dr. Lowe. I don't think it should be taken as a prediction at all. Should more onus uh, for um, manipulating demand be put on Parliament? Oh, absolutely. But, you know, it's too politically difficult. So that's why the Reserve Bank was given independence. Um, you know, in 1996, because it's all the whole thing. Manip manipulating demand is painful. Um, you know, it's it's fine if you're trying to increase demand. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> politicians love that. But 
restraining demand, whether you're doing it with higher interest rates or by increasing taxes or by cutting spending, government spending is hard. It's painful. And so politicians don't want to do it. They want to, politicians don't want to have a bar of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you could, you could do that. You could, even, you could also restrain inflation uh, by, by introducing price controls. Um, Such as the, the lab- ones Olivia Blanchard suggested? Yeah, well, that's right. So uh, he, um, the former chief economist of the IMF, he has suggested that politicians, governments start to do that. Um, the government, the Labor government in Australia did do that with the price cap on gas and coal last year, um, which was not designed to restrain inflation, but was in fact you know, designed to win them votes, of course, by um, you know, putting a cap on the cost of living crisis that everyone's going through. Um, but they could easily, or you know, not easily, but they could arguably put a cap on, I don't know, the price of bread or milk or petrol or anything, really. Would it, would it be a cap or would it be subsidies and then on the other side, uh, taxation to bring down the, the aggregate demand? Well, the one on gas, they just said the price of gas will be no more than $12 per gigajoule. That's it. There's <laughs> not a subsidy. They're not, Happy they're, days. Not, they're not giving money to anyone. They're just saying that's it. So, I mean, in 1948, there was a, actually a referendum um, to give the government power to control prices, but it was lost. And there was another attempt in 1973 to do something similar, but that was lost as well. So there have been sort of governments have tried over the years to do something or to give themselves the power to control prices, but, um, you know, that, that's been lost as a referendum in the Constitution. Um, but clearly the government does have the power legislatively to control prices if it wants to and the ACCC does tend to uh, set the price of uh, some essential services such as um, electricity and telecommunications by determining the return that the companies involved are allowed to make. You're not holding your breath though. I mean look look at what's just happened with this super thing and that's just a fracas and that affects about three percent of the population. No, no, that's right. So I don't think, I mean, I don't think the government is going to have a bar of uh, controlling prices or, um, I mean, apart from the, the other problem with controlling prices, of course, is that you end up with rationing. You know, that's what the gas companies were warning of uh, with, the, with the cap on, uh, on the gas prices. Um, you know, um, if you control prices artificially, then, you know, you end up with a, a cutback in supply or potentially you do. So... Look, politicians don't want to do that. Um, you could also arguably control inflation, and a lot of people kind of suggest this, by um, increasing and decreasing the GST, for example, and that would have the same effect. I mean, if you, say, increase the GST to 15%, that would have the similar, a similar effect to a rate hike. Um, but it's complicated. You know, it, it involves a whole lot of every, you know, every retailer in the country changing their changing their systems. So, you know, that's really not not possible. All right, let's move to equity markets. Um, so as we discussed, we're currently, uh, you know, heading towards uh, a recession of some sort. But the equity market doesn't seem to be pricing in recession at all. Um, I mean, the ASX 200 is only about 300 points off its all-time high. We just had an earnings season with more downgrades 
and upgrades. So what's going on with the equity market? What's the pri- what is it pricing in? Well, um, as I understand it, the, the average price earnings ratio of the market as a whole is 14.3%, sorry, 14.3 times, which is exactly the long-term average. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so you could say that the, the equity market, the Australian equity market is neither optimistic nor pessimistic. It's just, uh, it's just average. And that was after quite a big decline last year and then a rise from October. Um, so look, I, I wouldn't say that it's kind of it's not pricing in a recession um but it's you know it's definitely not pricing in growth um and uh, yeah look I, yeah i guess you're right it's not pricing in a recession because you know the the pe is kind of is average so it's um you know if, if the if the investors thought there was going to be a recession they would have it as uh, lower than 14.3 um just strikes me true, as very so. strange if we're going to have a recession and a recession would impact earnings and as the saying goes, stock prices follow earnings. Um, so I mean, is it is it's not pricing that far out, or it's pricing further out than that? You're probably trying to be too a bit too granular <laughs> here. I mean, the, the, um, and I I think that's probably right that in, the investors generally uh, don't think there'll be a recession. I think that that'd be a fair uh, that'd be a fair comment about the attitude of investors. All right, Alan, finally, let's move to managed funds. You've covered funds management for a long time. What do you look for in an actively managed fund? I look for uh, a fee that's not too high. Um, I, I suppose I've, I've come around to, you know, not hating performance fees. Um, you used to, I, I know for a fact. I used to, but I think that um, as long as it's not too much of a performance fee, I think that as long as, and as long as the returns uh, after the f- performance fee are, are enough, are good enough, then then that's fine. Um, and as long as there's a high watermark, so that they kind of uh, don't, you know, um, they have to recover any um, uh, underperformance before they start getting a perfor- their performance fee next time. Uh, I think it's okay. Um, I'm looking. I'm, I suppose I'm just looking for some looking for outperformance, and you know they all say uh, future performance is no sorry past performance is no guide to future performance, um, but it's really all you've got. So the only thing to do is to look at the past performance and to see if this person who's running the fund knows what they're doing, you know, and is, uh, has a good record. And if they do, then you know you go with them, I guess. So who have you gone with? I don't. Well, I run my own money. I don't. Uh, I haven't put my money into a fund except for Investsmart that I work for. I put some money into into their funds. I like the capped fee arrangement. I think that um, Investsmart was the first fund to cap the fee, which um, I think is uh, I think is good um, because uh, it doesn't cost. Uh, you know, it, it costs the same basically to run a million dollars as it does to run a hundred thousand dollars. So I don't think, I think the sort of the exponential increase in fees that occurs when when um, people put more money in these funds is uh, is probably un, unjustified. What kind of net return should investors expect from? a balanced fund these days, um, given the high risk in markets. I remember when I worked for you, uh, five or six years ago, you were saying about 10 or 12%, anything under that. And it's not, 
not really worth it? Is that is it still the same or has it gone down a bit? Well, the market itself gives you 8 or 9% over the long term. So if the, if the fund manager is giving you 8 or 9%, then there's, not, there's no point paying them. You might as well buy an ETF uh, or just sort of you, you invest in the top 10 stocks yourself. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you need to be getting more than that. I mean, I reckon if you're going to be paying someone a fair bit of money to look after your, your investments, you, um, you know, you want a decent return. You know, that's that's what it's about, and there are decent returns around. I mean, there are funds that have over over time delivered twenty percent compound. Um, you know, and as we know, the difference between twenty percent compound and ten percent compound is vast over a long period. What's your view on ETFs? We're about to do a series uh, on on ETFs at Livewire. Um, they've exploded in popularity. Um, what role do they th- do they play in the portfolio? I think that they play a sort of anchoring role. I, th- I think it's mm-hmm. uh, it's far from stupid to have kind of a half your money or whatever in in ETFs, uh, and then to sort of invest the rest um, in higher growth options, particularly if you're a long term investor. Um, so yeah, look, I, I think ETFs definitely have a role to play. Um, because what you're doing is investing in companies according to their size, and you know that's that's a good way to anchor your portfolio. Um, I'm not sure that I'd for, for a long-term investor. I'm not sure that I'd suggest um, putting all your money in ETS. But look, some people do because they don't really feel uh, as if they can pick decent company. You know, the companies themselves. Um, but you might want to put sort of half your money in ETFs and then the rest in active managers, uh, choose a sort of handful of active managers who have a good re- good track record that um, produces better than average market returns. Has the market gone too far with thematic ETFs? It seems you can get an ETF at just about anything these days. Oh, well, that's just marketing. I mean, that's fair enough. These, these companies need to make a living and trying to attract... <laughs> trying to attract money, so fair enough. And look, it is a good way to invest in global themes in particular. Um, you know, it's hard to, if, if you're interested in investing in, say, uh, uh, electric vehicle technology um, globally, well, it's very hard for an individual, some you know, sitting in Sydney or Melbourne to pick those companies around the world. So it's certainly a good way to do that, to, to go with what what those themes are, particularly globally, that's for sure. Access to us democratised it a little bit. That's right. Well, and this has been a great chat. It's good to see you again after a few years. Um, I'd love to have you back on soon. No worries. Thanks, Dave. That's it for today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. For more content like this, be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com. We'll see you next time.